The following presentation is from the 41st Annual Addiction Treatment Leadership Conference, presented by the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, held in Washington, D.C., May 5th through the 7th, 2019. This is General Session 4, moderated by Annie Peters, Ph.D., the NAATP Education Chair. The presentation is the NAATP Addiction Outcomes Measurement Toolkit, the Addiction Treatment Provider Implementation Guide to Standardized Outcomes Measurement. The panel includes Holland Hirsch, Ph.D., Director of Public and Behavioral Health at the Omni Institute, Mark Lowe's Operations Director at Sundown M. Ranch, and Natalie Wheeler, Ph.D., a researcher at the Omni Institute. Good morning. Welcome to General Session 4. This is the presentation of the NAATP Addiction Treatment Outcomes Measurement Toolkit. And this is very exciting because I'm so excited to be here to be able to introduce this panel. I'm Annie Peters, and I'm on the board of directors at NATAP. And uh, this is essentially what the presentation, what the conference has been leading up to. So um, if you think about Marvin's initial statements on Sunday night, he talked about we are in an environment at this time where we really need to demonstrate that addiction treatment works and that people can get well and they can stay well. We need to be able to demonstrate that to the public and to payers and to people who need some hope uh, and need to see that there is a way that we can actually demonstrate that what we, what we know, that what we do is helps people in the long term. So that's what today is about. And... Uh, so as you saw on Sunday night, Omni won the uh, Quality Improvement Award, and this is, this is essentially why. This is the presentation of the toolkit itself. So over the past couple years, the outcomes pilot project between NAATP, Omni Institute, and the eight pilot sites across the country has culminated in uh, this presentation where we're going to be presenting the standardized tool and standardized process that now can be used by anyone to uh, measure outcomes and demonstrate what we do in a standardized and an ethical way. So this is pretty exciting. Um, so I'm going to just introduce the panel and turn it over to them. We have Dr. Holland Hirsch, who's the Director of Public and Behavioral Health at Omni Institute and the head of this project as well as Natalie Wheeler. Dr. Wheeler is a researcher at Omni Institute. And we have Mark Lowe's, the Chief Operating Officer at Sundown M Ranch, which was one of the eight pilot sites. So what we're going to do today is have them present the, uh, we talked about the rationale for outcomes research. And now we're going to look at what the research was, what the project was, uh, what the data is, and what the toolkit is uh, and is available for use at this time. So. Please help us welcome the panel, and I will turn it over to them. Thank you. Okay, so like Annie mentioned, thanks for the introduction. I'm Natalie Wheeler. I'm a researcher at Omni Institute, and I led the analysis and reporting component for the NAATP pilot study. I'm going to start by giving you some background on the study and tell you a little bit about the data we collected. Uh, then I'm going to turn things over to Holland and Mark, and they're going to tell you more about the toolkit and the actual how, uh, how you might implement this at your own organization. 
Um, so we are really excited to be presenting and sharing this information with you today. Um, this has been a really long time coming. Omni first um, talked about this when it was in its planning stages back in 2016. And over the last three years, um, we've worked really hard and it's been a big undertaking um, to implement this across the eight pilot sites. Um, so we are very thankful both to NAATP and for everybody who participated at the eight pilot sites. Um, without them, this would not have been possible. So we had um, eight participants, Sundown M Ranch, Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, New Directions for Women, Avenues Recovery, Karen Treatment Centers, Tully Hill Chemical Dependency Treatment Center, Seabrook House, and Ashley Addiction Treatment. So these eight pilot sites are all NAATP members, but they differ in a lot of ways. So they're located across the country, they serve different populations, use different treatment modalities, and have different levels of familiarity with outcomes research. So um, Hazelden Betty Ford, for example, has its own internal research institute and has been doing outcomes research for a long time. Um, other sites, this was a newer experience for them participating in the pilot site. We really wanted to get a diversity of experiences because um, one of our big goals was to develop best practices that would work across NAATP membership. So we really wanted to understand what it takes to do this work across um, the diverse range of programs that are represented here. So there were three enrollment criteria for the NAATP pilot. The first is that participants had to be at least 18 years of age at the time that they started treatment. They also had to be voluntarily enrolled in an inpatient treatment program. So if they were court mandated to be in treatment, they were not eligible to participate. The final criteria was that they had to complete both a consent form and an intake survey. So. Um, Across the eight sites, we use the same enrollment criteria, and throughout um, the enrollment period, any participants that met these three criteria were eligible to be included in the pilot study. So this uh, slide provides an overview of our timeline for data collection, which began in September 2016. But before this, we also had a pretty extensive planning period. I want to highlight a few things that happened during that time period as well. Um, so first, we received um, approval from an institutional review board in order to conduct the pilot study. Um, and IRBs are tasked with making sure that research is done in an ethical manner. So they reviewed um, all of our protocols, all of the materials we use, the surveys, um, the consent forms to make sure that they met ethical standards. In addition to getting IRB approval, we also got um, a certificate of confiden confidentiality from NIDA. And this just provides an extra layer of protection to ensure that participants' data can't be released and we don't have to break confidentiality for any reason. Um, the third part of the planning process I want to highlight is around training. Um, so all eight pilot sites were trained um, similarly to try to standardize how um, protocols and surveys were administered across sites. So we offered a webinar training, a lot, lots of resource documents, and also one-on-one -on -one, um, meetings and coachings if that was something that people were interested in. So data, data collection began in September 2016 and lasted for five months through February 2017. And during that time, um, we enrolled 748 participants in the pilot study. We followed up with those participants at five different time points. So at one, three, six, 
nine, and 12 months. And we determined the periods in which we would follow up, from the, follow up with them from their intake date. So another way in which these facilities differed is the length of their programs. So many were 30-day programs, but some were longer 90-day programs. Um, and so we wanted to be comparing apples to apples, and so we wanted to be following up with people at similar time points. Um, and the most common time point people all had was their intake date. So those follow-up time periods are from when they entered treatment. Uh, so we completed all of the follow-up data collection in April 2018, and then we have spent the last year analyzing that data, creating some reports for each site, as well as creating the toolkit and the final report, which was distributed to NAATP members. Um, you have access to both of those documents in your app, so if you are bored of me talking or you have questions, you want to learn more, you can look in your app and access both of those documents. <laughs> So our two goals um, for the pilot study, first, um, like I already mentioned, was to establish best practices in outcomes research for substance use treatment. So we really wanted to understand what it actually takes to do this research and um, give you guys the tools to go out and do it. Um, and the result of this is everything that's included in the toolkit. So the toolkit includes the surveys, the protocols, checklists for you to follow, lots of best practices, and that's what Holland and Mark are gonna dig into a little later. The second goal is, um, you know, we collected tons of data at intake and across the follow-up um, surveys, so we wanted to look at that data and see what we could use that data for to understand um, who the participants were in this study, what their experiences were like during treatment, and also what their outcomes looked like after treatment. So I'm going to give you just some very high-level highlights from this report. This is not at all comprehensive. I just want to give you a flavor of what the data is. Um, if you are in interested in this data, have other questions, you can find it all in the full report that's in the conference app. So we had 748 participants in the outcomes pilot program. 58% were male. Um, at the time of intake, 47% were employed, 91% identified as white, and about a third were married at intake. So generally, the demographics of those who participate in the pilot are similar to national samples of individuals in inpatient treatment. Um, there were a few differences between our population and national samples. Our population was more likely to be employed, and our participants generally had a higher level of education than those in national samples. Okay, so this graph is showing you follow-up rates at each time point, and I want to quickly orient you to this graph and what it's showing. So on the left side, you see each of the follow-up time points, starting with one month at the top and 12 months at the bottom. Those big blue dots are showing the average follow-up rate at each time point across the eight sites. So we had a 58% follow-up rate across the eight sites at the one-month follow-up. Those gray bars are representing the range of follow-up rates we see across the eight sites. So at the one-month follow-up, one site had a 15% follow-up rate, another site had an 84% follow-up rate. So what I want you to take away from this is that generally over time we see follow-up rates decrease, which makes sense. It becomes harder to reach people the longer they have been out of treatment. And also that we see a wide range of follow-ups across sites. So those gray bars are pretty wide. 
one thing I want to note is that it's not always the same facilities that are getting the lowest or the highest follow-up rates. So there are kind of shifts across time in who is performing relatively, who has relatively higher or lower follow-up rates, and there's not one site that's really overperforming and um, driving our follow-up rates. We see a pretty, a relatively equal distribution across our eight sites of the um, follow-up data that we collected. Um, so in the next two slides, I'm going to give you um, just a little preview of some of the data that we uh, collected in the follow-up surveys. Um, and they fall into kind of two broad domains, one being what participants' experiences in treatment were, were like, and another what their outcomes were like after treatment. Oh, well, that looks different than it did, but that's fine. <laughs> Look at the numbers, maybe ignore the colors, don't know what's going on there. Um, so this chart is showing you um, participants' rating of the helpfulness of different treatment components. So generally participants rated treatment as pretty helpful. They made these ratings on a scale from one to four, one being not at all helpful, four being very helpful. Because they rated treatment as pretty helpful, here I'm just showing you the percentage of participants who reported each component as being very helpful, so the highest point on that scale. So. 81% of our participants um, gave their overall rating of treatment as being very helpful. Um, this also gives us some information about the relative helpfulness of different components of treatment. So participants found things like talking with other clients and group therapy to be relatively more helpful than things like working the AANA steps and lectures and education. Um, so looking at outcomes here, we're looking at abstinence. Um, abstinence is certainly not the only outcome that you might be interested in or that you want, would want to look at, but it is a critical outcome um, in a lot of the time. Um, so that's why I'm sharing it with you today. So those lighter blue bars represent the number of survey respondents who we were able to reach at each time point. So you can see over time we were reaching less individuals. The darker blue bars represent the abstinence rate among the participants we were able to reach. So at the one month follow-up, 70% of individuals reported being abstinent. By the 12 month follow-up, 65% of individuals reported being abstinent. We do not include individuals who we did not reach for surveys in these calculations. So we don't make an assumption either way about those who we didn't reach, whether they were abstinent or not, um, because we know there's a lot of reasons um, why they could not be reachable, that they might be abstinent, they might not, because we don't know for sure, we don't include them here. So in addition to just looking at abstinent rates over time, we also look at how the other data we collected is related to abstinence rates. Um, so we look both at participant characteristics at intake, um, their experiences during treatment, and also their behavior after treatment, and what things were linked to um, being abstinent at 12 months after treatment. So um, participants who were older and participants who were married at the time of intake to treatment were more likely to be abstinent at the 12-month follow-up. In addition, individuals who reported using fewer substances in the 30 days prior to entering treatment were also more likely to report being abstinent. Um, in terms of their experiences during treatment, uh, participants who had 
more days of clinically managed residential treatment and individuals who successfully completed treatment as opposed to leaving in staff advice or being asked to leave for some reason were more likely to be abstinent. And then finally, participants who more frequently attended AA meetings in the time after they left treatment were also more likely to report being abstinent at 12 months. So a few um, limitations of this study that I do want to highlight. First is that not all participants were reached for follow-up. Um, so we don't know uh, information about the outcomes of the participants we were not able to reach. One thing that we did do was we looked at if there were characteristics of the participants we were able to reach uh, versus those that we weren't. And we found that individuals who we were less likely to reach for follow-up surveys um, tended to be younger and tended to have lower levels of education at the time that they started treatment. So I note this because the findings I presented here today are likely to be less um, generalizable to these popula populations because they're just less represented in our um, follow-up sample. The second limitation I want to note is that this is a convenient sample. So this is not a double-blind study. We did not assign people to receive treatment or not. Um, we used the individuals who were in inpatient treatment at the eight sites um, for this study. So um, the population included in the study may or may not be representative of everyone who seeks um, inpatient treatment for substance use disorders. So with that, I'm going to turn things over to my colleague, Colin, um, to talk about the Outcomes Measurement Toolkit. all know and understand now that 
although there are many providers in the organization who do their own participant outcomes research, there is not currently a nationwide standard for treatment providers to collect common outcomes data. The second reason for the toolkit is to really hope, um, help close the gap in treatment outcomes research by offering the standard tools and protocols so that instead of treatment facility A doing X and treatment facility B doing Y, we are all collecting at least some data that are common so that we can understand what happens for patients both throughout the course of treatment and long term in, in a common way so that we're speaking the same language across facilities. Um, and on that note, the toolkit can facilitate common data collection across, support, uh, across providers to support additional research. So by collecting these data over time, we will understand at a larger level what happens for patients um, throughout the course of their treatment and recovery process. It can inform effective practices in treatment and promote provider um, services. And I think we're all on the same page about why we collect outcomes data. This is my sales pitch, uh, but I think they're all here because we agree that collecting outcomes data is important. It can help you set programmatic goals, research goals, and goals for your program performance and for your treatment of patients, and monitor progress over time about how your program is meeting those goals. You can learn how your services are related to recovery, again, not just during the time that patients are in treatment and whether they have successful completion of treatment, um, but what happens in the long term for patients and what is um, predictive of whether or not individuals will stay well you may also learn what types of patients benefit most from treatment. And through this type of effort, you can inform your marketing efforts to audiences who might benefit most from your program, and also to demonstrate the advocacy of your program to payers, to patients, etc. We wanted to be able to bring this to life for you all. Through the conversations that I've had throughout the course of the conference over the last couple of days, they mostly go something like this. Well, what's next? What do I do now? How do I, how do, I do this at my own program? What's it going to take? How much is it going to cost? Do I have to hire staff? Do I have to hire a research firm? The, the answer to that question is going to differ, I am guessing, for all of you. But to help put it into, into real life terms for you, what we want to do today is a, a case study format, if you will, with Sundown and Ranch, where we're going to talk about the best practices that are outlined in the toolkit, and then Mark is going to talk about how they have done this at Sundown and Ranch so that you all can learn from their process. And then I hope we can have a conversation after the session today um, to learn a little bit more about what you're doing and to hopefully provide some ideas and some input into how you might bring outcomes research to life in your own treatment facility. I just want to say that um, Sundown and Ranch has been doing outcomes research for a long time. They were a participant in the pilot program and they have been a really um, effective and great research partner throughout the course of the pilot. Um, they clearly have the leadership commitment to doing this kind of work, and you might hear us drive that point home throughout the course of our, uh, of our conversation today, but I think that Mark is going to be able to provide a, a lot of really great context for you all about 
about how they've done, done this in their program. Um, so what, how I'm going to do this is I'm going to share a couple of best practices and what they mean from the research perspective, and then Mark is going to share what that means for him in terms of his program. Um, so the first best practice that is outlined in the toolkit is around ethical engagement with human participants. Your organization has a clear plan for ethical engagement with human participants in research, including institutional review board review if necessary. And there's two key parts of this that I want to highlight for today's conversation. The first is informed and voluntary consent. So if you are conducting an outcomes research program at your organization, you want to make sure that you are having a, a transparent and upfront conversation with patients and who are participants in your study about why your organization is engaging in outcomes research and why you are asking them to participate and informing them that if they choose not to participate, that won't have any consequence to treatment services at your organization. Research should not be compulsory. compulsory. The other key piece that I want to highlight is confidentiality. So when you are conducting data from participants for research or evaluation purposes, you want to make sure that you have clear protocols in place, both through your data collection systems um, and through your data storage mechanisms to ensure confidentiality. The other best practice that I'm going to highlight before I turn it to Mark for more conversation is our organization has a clear research plan, including identified research questions and protocols and surveys to address each research question. And the point of this is not just to collect data for data's sake. If you are going to be engaging in an outcomes program, you want to have clear plans in place that you're using everybody's time effectively. If you're asking for participants' time to do research, you want to make sure that you have clear plans for what you're going to do with their data um, and how you're going to use it well. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Mark, and then, then we'll move along. <laughs> I don't know. Someone turned it on. Good morning, everyone. Hopefully my voice will hold up uh, for the discussion. Um, honored and humbled uh, to be discussing this important topic with you this morning. Um, this goes back a number of years, so, so probably 12 years uh, there's been some level of involvement. I mean, some of you remember the, the benchmarking we did with NAATP uh, historically, and I've been on a number of different, like, you know, groups, committees, through the National Association, trying to put this all together. So, kind of want to echo what, what Holland was saying, that uh, this is a truly collaborative effort uh, from the National Association of Congress and providers. So, anytime time, it was a very smooth process. But if I had questions or we needed discussions, I mean, uh, Omni and NWHP both are so uh, very responsive and effective with their, those responses. So th this has really been a pleasure to work with them. They're great partners, and uh, for as big of a project as this was, it, it really went well. Um, so, starting when we, when we were looking at this, we you know done a lot of outcome studies over the years. Um, you know, a combination of some electronic stuff, some paper stuff. Um, the, you know, the issue I think a lot of us have is staff turnover and, and training staff and trying to keep up reliability, validity, uh, model fidelity, 
all of those things that make research um, better, you know, quality research. Uh, that's a struggle for all organizations. Um, the fact that we've been doing outcomes for 20 plus years was, was beneficial, but never something with an IRB and kind of this level of detail. So we learned a lot from our participation as a, as a pilot organization um, and really get a top-down, bottom-up approach to this. So leadership was highly involved and committed to devoting the resources to participate in, in this project. And I think that is absolutely one of the keys for organizations from the very start. Um, leadership needs to be involved, and not just top-down. We need to get bottom-up because we've got to figure out workflows. Workflows are really important. We're trying to make this work within of our treatment settings. Because uh, what we don't want to do is disrupt patient care. We've got to figure out a way to collect this data, do these interviews, or, or have the patients fill out surveys, um, and not be too disruptive to their day-to-day -day treatment process. Uh, and that can be a challenge. Uh, so we decided to uh, use quality folks. I, I recruited uh, a couple other MBAs in the organization and uh, one of my really top counselors and did training on motivational interviewing and using the guidelines provided by uh, the NAATP and AMI on best practices for you know increasing model fidelity and, and keeping things um, consistent. And so, uh, honestly, I did a, a, a lot of these interviews. So um, I would have they would call me and, and for intake interviews, uh, and I'd be you know a normal day. We all we're all working. We got a million things we're doing, and I'd be like, I'm stopping what I'm doing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna have a patient come down. I'm gonna do an interview and do an, in, an intake interview, and uh, it was kind of funny. Some of the patients were smiling. Like, Why do I gotta meet with the COO? It's like, you know, I mean, they just got there. And so, you know, you just, uh, I'm, I'm a clinician at heart, so you just kind of talk to them a bit, kind of sit them down, do the motivational engagement, and uh, go through the interview process. And we were able to, you know, collect our data quickly and, and because we made it a priority. And I think when, when Hall says we're good partners, that's why. Is that we really prioritize this as this is a strategic goal for the organization to do this effectively. And so we use top people. Um, you know that that's a challenge as well. You're paying you're paying somebody to do a pretty high level job, and, and you're asking them now to do interviews and and do patient survey interviews. Um, so each organization kind of has to analyze. You know what are your resources? What are you willing to do uh, to implement a uh, program evaluation system? Because it's truly a system. best practices that I want to highlight, and then you can see if you want to say anything more about this. But the first is that our organization has infrastructure in place to conduct outcomes research, including but not limited to staff training protocols, management of staff turnover, and plans for monitoring and reporting the data. And what this means at a high level or a practical level is really that the outcomes program is tied to the organization and not to an individual staff member or to just your one champion of doing outcomes research. So at Sundown at Ranch, if Mark were to move on to a new position elsewhere, um, the organization has invested heavily in outcomes research and, and would want to ensure that that continued regardless of how the project was staffed. So it's really about having infrastructure at the organizational level, not just at the one champion staff member. 
level. That said, staff is really important. Mark spoke to this as well. The, the next best practice is our organization has a clear staffing plan, including leadership appointed to oversee the project and research staff to implement the research. And this speaks to the top-down and bottom-up approach. So really having buy-in at all levels of the organization will ensure success in your program because leadership will be helping to promote the culture of learning and evaluation throughout the organization. And therefore, staff will understand the importance of the research, will be able to communicate that to patients and participants in the research. And this will help you throughout the entire course of the, of the work, not just in collecting data while patients are in treatment, but also long-term after patients have left treatment. So to the extent that you're able to garner participant buy-in early on, we really believe that that is linked closely to success in follow-up over the long-term. Yeah, I think I covered some of this already, but I think part of this analysis here about looking at staff and, and who you want to use, or do you want to hire FTEs, or do you want to hire, like, outsource it, hire some, hire Omni, hire somebody that's a, that is an expert at doing this kind of work, um, part of that analysis should be to look at the whole system. You know, are you going to use a paper system, are you going to use an electronic system, are you going to use an app, app a mobile application, because that, that is going to kind of drive those other decisions. So this kind of ties into our next slide, but I think we're here. Um, you know, I've been looking at this stuff for a long time, so not just internally, but you know, I, I do car surveys too, so I get, I get to see a lot of outcome uh, systems in, in other organizations all around the country, and um, you know, that's valuable, and that you see what other people are doing, and kind of you see other best practices, and you see the good and the bad, bless you. Um, it, it's, uh, I've had this vision for probably 12 years that we really wanted to go to some electronic format. So, so when I do a cost-benefit analysis of, you know, using FTEs or paying, you know, a, a research department, which I think is is optimal if you have the resources and and, and the you know the cash flow to do that. But I, you know, we're a kind of a medium-sized organization. We're you know private nonprofit. I, I don't have uh, you know somebody writing me big checks to do like super high-end research. So uh, as I do a cost-benefit analysis on this, I think this will be useful for a lot of you, is kind of looking at, you know, do I want to hire FTEs or can I, can I save some costs by utilizing technology uh, to move this system forward? And, and we're kind of going in that direction. So we evaluated a lot of products in the current market. There's some good products out there that are available, but most of them were not customizable enough for me. And so I found a, a new vendor that was willing to develop something that was specific for Sundown M Ranch to meet some of our needs. And I can give you a really good example of that. In our, in our you know, existing outcome studies, we scored really high on food satisfaction. That was important, important to me. So, so not just measuring like wellness and all that other stuff, but we also wanted to see some satisfaction stuff. So like what do the patients like and don't, what do they dislike? And, and our food scores have always been historically high, and they started dropping over like a three-year period. So I'm like, this is, this is, you know, an interesting thing. I need to do something about our, our food products. And so we, you know, we, we hired a new chef, we installed a salad bar, we did a lot, a lot of things to make our menus healthier, and those scores went like straight back up. So that's an example of how you can take that data and use it in a practical sense to improve 
your patient care. I mean, the, the patients want to enjoy their experience. Um, moving, moving forward, looking at all that paper and the labor cost to use paper um, didn't seem attractive anymore. Plus, it's just a, it's a lot of work trying to get the data entry and, and dealing with all of that. So with the technology we have available today, uh, I can look at dashboards. I mean, if somebody checked in two seconds ago, as soon as that thing is submitted, that's in the dashboard. I can see that data and I can respond to that data. So in my old system, it might take me a year and a half to get all that data compiled and then analyzed, uh, whereas now I can see it instantly. And maybe I want to do a, a special you know, survey on one item, a three-question survey or something. I mean, it's super easy to implement that into a handheld and, and get that data going uh, right away. And you can take a quick look at something uh, and be able to respond to it uh, you know, quickly and effectively. So um, those, those are some of the questions you really got to ask yourself. I mean, have, you know, do you want to use uh, you know, an, an expert in the field? Do you want to hire some FTEs to manage it internally? Uh, combination of both, or you know, or do you want to utilize technology and, and move in that direction? One of the things that I don't think we've really seen a lot of data on is: is there a difference from a skilled uh, clinician like you know me, say, doing an interview on a survey with motiv motivational interviewing techniques versus somebody being held a handheld and answering those questions? And I don't think we put a lot of research into, into knowing the answer to that. I don't know that we do know the answer to that. My guess would be that there probably is a difference. You know, and, and we won't know that. We may never know that. But that's just something I thought about. You know, I, I thought about through the whole time of this analysis of how we want to implement this. Uh, it's still not going to stop me from trying the technology. You know, that, and I think that's the answer, at least it is for us.
time management parts is and we just have to prioritize again. So so for us it was just you know knowing that I have other stuff to do with these interviews are important and where we, we signed up to do this is the responsibility is the priority and so so we made it so. Okay, and the last piece, um, Mark, you touched on this a little bit, but I think it might be helpful for you to sort of talk about your assessment pro process. But the last best practice is, if necessary, our organization has engaged research partners to effectively conduct an outcomes research program, including an IRB, external evaluators, and or a data management firm. And this is where I suspect there is just going to be a whole lot of variance across treatment providers in terms of capacity within the organization, um, financial resources to do the work, and what your organizational culture is around wanting to hire contractors versus wanting to have FTEs in-house. And so I think each organization is going to have to assess on a case-by-case -case basis what it's going to take um, to piece together um, a research program that is going to help you reach your long-term outcomes goals. For those of you who were in the quality assurance session yesterday that we did with Dr. Holman, I think he highlighted in similar ways the way that their organization has thought about both hiring external contractors and bringing folks in-house. So they talked about hiring a, a technology company to help them with their data management and reporting and then also hiring someone who could coordinate the research and has research knowledge and sophistication to help with the, the longer term analysis and answering some of those more complex or sophisticated questions that their organization has about outcomes. Um, and so Mark, if you could just talk a little bit more about your assessment process, I think that would be helpful. So how many of you are doing outcomes now? Okay. How many of you are like outcome nerds? Like you really like data? Yeah, okay. All right, so I'm not alone, totally. Um, so, so some things to look at. I mean, that you know, sample size. So, so large organizations, you know, it's going to cost you more, obviously, because you got you got more patients to deal with, more staff to deal with. Um, but you can also look at using a randomizer doing samples versus doing your whole population. Uh, I generally choose to do my whole population because even though it's a randomizer, I still I still like to capture the whole population. So for us, that's about two thousand patients a year. Um, you know, that, that is a pretty big thing to look at. You know, are you going to do the whole thing or are you going to randomize? Because randomizing will reduce costs, especially if you outsource the follow-up. So in the NAATP pilot project, we outsourced the follow-up to Omni. You know, I, I, I kind of looked at that. Do I want to, you know, hire somebody or two people to make, what is it, seven phone calls on average for each one person? Uh, ten. Ten phone calls on average for each one person. And, uh, we decided not to. That we were going to pay. We're going to pay the experts, the researchers, to go ahead and make those follow-up calls. So we did the the initial assessment and the discharge assessments, uh, and then they did the follow-up. Uh, we ended up having about a 60% follow-up rate. So that, that that's I think was was good. That reached our goal. Um, one of my concerns when I an analyzed this is that as I move away from that system and move to a more electronic system, like an app-based system. Um, what is that response rate going to look like? You know, how, how much, how many people are truly going to respond on their handheld to, to uh, you know, the survey? Um, I think that those, these are things that we really got to ask ourselves as we look at these different systems. Um, the, the, other, the other thing I really looked at with FTEs was um, staff turnover. So, so continually having to train staff to 
manage follow-up calls is difficult and it may have ran into that over the years. Uh, so to maintain fidelity, there needs to be a lot of training around how these interviews are conducted. Uh, there's multiple calls to reach one person. So um, those, those are some, some key things to look at. And then another factor is you're going to follow up on everybody. You know, so if you're going to do all of your patients and not use a randomizer, are you going to follow up at the end on everybody? And that includes people that leave early, get discharged administratively, AMA, get medically discharged. Uh, do you follow up on all of those folks? Uh, my answer would be yes, you should. Uh, it kind of skews the research if we only follow up on the completers. So we had several people in the pilot project that only, that like literally left after two days and still ended up following up all the way through the end. So um, it's important that we, we follow up on all those people. So even if you use a randomizer, you're still gonna follow up on that whole sample of the, of the random sample after discharge. Does that make sense? Good, well, um, we are going to end early. And the reason that we're going to do that is to allow ample time for conversation up front um, for folks who want to hear more about specifics related to their organization. The panel will be here to talk with you all. Um, for those of you who don't have questions, you're welcome. Um, So just want to thank you overall for coming to this. And so this is, if you haven't looked at the toolkit yet, it is amazing and it is very detailed and it is all available to you. And now we can measure the great work we do. And thank you to everyone. Thank you to the panel. But we do want to have um, just a more intimate conversation maybe for the outcomes nerds who want to stick around and ask specific questions about how to implement this toolkit and where to go next. Um, I do want to just mention that the pack lunch starts at uh, noon, so that is downstairs in the Empire Ballroom, but we want to use the remainder of the time for uh, those of you who want to stick around and ask the panel some questions on, on how to implement this great tool. So thanks everybody for coming. Some of this on the mic, and then if we get too far into specifics or too far into the weeds, then we'll stick around for, for more um, program-specific questions, but um, to the extent that folks' questions can inform the whole audience and who are interested in follow-up conversation, we're going to do that now. The question is about quality improvement call protocols versus actual research, correct? So this, in my mind, is the distinction between evaluation and research. They don't want to. I told you. And you can tell me if I'm interpreting your question. I was like, you don't get panels or QA. When I think about yeah. evaluation, like, no, the, the guiding principle of evaluation is to inform your program and to inform program improvement. So you're doing it for internal purposes so that you understand what's. You can't hear. I'm going to ask that those of you who don't want to stick around for the more detailed discussion, that if you could um, move on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and keep quiet so we can continue to have this. This is a really important discussion for the people who want to implement the toolkit. So, yeah. So if you want to chit chat, there's lots of space outside the room. Thank you. Um, okay. So can you hear now? Yes. Okay. Um, so the question is about what's the difference between um, quality improvement or what I would consider evaluation 
and research. So the purpose of evaluation is for program improvement, program understanding, and program learning. How is our program meeting our goals are for serving patients? Um, research is for um, broader public consumption, for informing the community at large, for informing the academic community, and I would be thinking about that in terms of more rigorous it should be there now, right? Research, so protocol so standards, IRB approval, et cetera. Does that answer your question? What's your second question? Both of those data can be used for both of those purposes. That's correct. The question is about including more rigorous psychometric measures in the toolkit. So for those of you who've read the toolkit, you know that the, um, the, the surveys were developed by Dr. Norm Hoffman, and the intent of the surveys are for them to be as broadly applicable as, as possible across organizations looking at key indicators of recovery. We expect that every organization will also be selecting additional outcomes measures, including the, the, the surveys, psychometrically rigorous surveys that are most applicable to the treatment services that you're providing and relate to the outcomes that you would expect to see for your patients based on the services that you provide. All right, next question. Are you referring to the to the pilot project? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's actually that's historically uh, we, we usually have about 85 to 90 percent completion rate across the 2,000 patients, so that that's actually accurate. Uh, um, highest would be the short-term residential, so like 28 days or less. Average length stay for an adult residential about 24 days, so that that, that is accurate. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, and that, and that was all we measured. So we did we did not measure in this pilot project. We did not measure outpatient. You know, like on, on our own we do because we have to measure all of our accredited programs. So we we measured data on all the programs. That's a good question. I, uh, it, it, to me, it validates the research more because if you only take all of the successful people, you're going to get much higher results. I mean, you know, off out of my head, I'm not a researcher like Paul. Yeah, so I, from a research perspective, there's two reasons off the top of my head I can think of that you would want to do that. First is an intent to treat model. So generally in research, you see that when um, when patients have the intent to enroll in treatment, they look different than a, than a patient who doesn't enroll in treatment at all. So just simply by means of entering treatment, they um, you might expect that they would have different outcomes than someone who's not yet seeking treatment services. The other reason that you might want to do that for program learning within your own um, program 
is that it provides you with um, a really um, accessible comparison sample, if you will. So you have participants who have enrolled in your treatment program, but they do not yet have a treatment plan, they have not yet received treatment in your, in your program. Then you have participants who enroll in your, in your program and have received the full course of treatment. You now have um, a comparison sample by which you can look at outcomes for patients who have received the full course of treatment versus patients who haven't received the full course of treatment, and you can understand how outcomes have differed for those people over time. You can also understand differences in patient characteristics for the people who haven't completed treatment. So it will help inform you about why you haven't, um, why you are losing them to treatment, and what, what characteristics might differ about them, which can also inform you about retention over time for participants who, or patients who might be harder to reach through treatment. Next question? So, Mark, oh. yes. you mentioned your different programs, for instance, the intervention study, and there's a robotic program. Would that part of your study have been residential practice? Pardon? Informative 
strict research purposes, this gets back to Dr. Keynes' question at the beginning. You're not going to be releasing the results, you're not going to be publishing the findings, um, then no, you do not need to go through an institutional review board process again. Uh, if you have intention to publish the findings, to disseminate them broadly, then you need to be thinking about an IRB. And the last piece that I will add to this is if you have questions in your mind about whether or not you should be seeking an IRB um, review, you should consult with an IRB before you move forward with your research um, with your research protocols because they'll be able to inform you about whether or not you really need to um, go through that process.
to treatment and also looking at kind of other outpatient, other forms of care that people are getting and how that relates to the overall advocacy. Is that a fair summary? Okay, so, and outcomes. <laughs> um, so to address the first part, I think first, I don't think our intention with this work was to um, demonstrate the efficacy of this treatment. It was more about the process and understanding how to do this and the best way to do this. Um, so I don't think we can fully answer that question. One thing that we did ask about, so at the three-month follow-up, we asked participants exactly like what levels of care they received and how much of it. Um, so that is where we got the finding that I shared earlier about um, inpatient residential treatment being related to outcomes. So we did ask about have you received outpatient care since being discharged from treatment for at the three-month follow-up. We all we don't know it beyond that they were potentially still getting um, outpatient treatment. I think that is certainly something that like merits further exploration. Um, and I think we just because it wasn't the main goal of this work, it wasn't a, a focus um, for us. But certainly was part of the data that we captured at least at one time. Yeah, and then the other question was about how can you use data to inform and improve your treatment practices? And I think um, what we've been talking about in this session is really focused on the long-term outcomes. And for those of you who were in the session yesterday with the Joint Commission, I think that that further informs um, how you're using data in the day-to-day -to, -day to inform your practice. So um, using psychometric validated tools in a measurement-based care model so that you're using data in an ongoing um, and an ongoing and real-time practice within your treatment program is something to, that's important and this is where the joint commission comes in. Um, feedback informed care, right? So you are using a constant feedback loop with your clinicians and your data to inform what, what treatment looks like for patients. Um, and I think the last point that I want to make on that is this is where I think technology can be useful, right? So Mark made the point about the data goes in, you can see the data, and I think that that um, is, is a, an important place where we can really leverage technology so that the data don't go into a black hole where you can not, no longer see it, but rather it's being fed back to you in as close to real time as possible so that you can use it to make updates to the treatment plan quickly and effectively to inform and provide the highest level of care to patients. Yeah, and uh, you know, we, we do we do outpatient follow-up. So, so with some of these cases, they'll have a you know withdrawal management stay, residential stay. We don't do partial, so then it'd be maybe IOP and outpatient. And um, those systems historically were kind of silos. So it was really hard to do comparative analysis of the of that patient through the different programming. Um, with the moving forward, we should be able to pull that patient up and have a dashboard of just that patient and look at kind of like them through time and through the different programming and you can kind of see what we see in people in recovery that they, they kind of bounce around a little bit um, and, and that, that should be useful information. I think one of the issues we have in substance use disorders is we don't have a you know, worldwide accepted validated tool like a, you know, a GAD or a PHQ or something like that. So, you know, um, for those of us that are, you know, primarily or, or solely doing substance use disorders, um, you know, it's tough to 
They cut us off. No. It's tough to implement a system uh, to, to do that. You know, so you kind of make up your own metrics or you use some validated metrics. Uh, but we don't really have that, you know, THQ uh, survey. You know, it'd be nice if we did. So, that, so basically, we took the toolkit and just applied that uh, to our electronic version, but then added some very customized questions that we have. And I've I've been in a, a group with Karen and other providers for you know a dozen years, and we've done some benchmarking, we've done lots of stuff over the years. But I mean, I remember sitting in a meeting uh, with the, the National Association, a bunch of members, and we we argued for like an hour and a half over what a successful discharge was. Because we were trying to set up benchmarking measures, and so some of you have maybe been through this over the years. Where I mean, we couldn't decide on what a successful completion of treatment was. So, so this was a big step to kind of saying, okay, here's a guideline, here's a toolkit, and whether you agree or not, this is what we're using to standardize, and, and let's move forward and, and start doing some some real useful data analysis. And it really was that for to show the world, to show the policy writers, the bureaucrats, the payers, and everybody else that what we're doing means something. It's super effective, it's good for society, and it saves the healthcare system billions of dollars when people get clean and sober. I mean, we all know this, but we got to show it in, in a scientific way. Other questions?